everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse. What's up? I'm Michelle. And today we are going to hit on a topic that's been on my mind a lot recently, which is what does it mean to be an artist? And there's so many ways we could take that, but I'm excited to get into it and talk a little bit more about what happens after you leave the student level of music. <laughs> yeah. Once you enter the the great ocean blue <laughs> of the world. The ambiguous real world yeah. is one of my least favorite phrases. Yeah. But before we hop into that, we've got a little bit of chit chat, some announcements. So first of all, I want to talk about our watch party that we did this past weekend. So much fun. Oh so my gosh. Fun. So what we ended up watching, we watched Weird Al's biopic, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And that is the most insane <laughs> movie. If you've seen The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, it's kind of in that genre, I would say. But personally speaking, better. Yeah, it it's it's way more over the top than the Nicholas and Pedro Pascal movie, but it's it's so good. Like the whole time we were all watching, we were like, I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't that. And it was so, so good. It was so funny too. And for those of you who are at different time zones, in the future we will look at adding more watch parties at different hours in order to enable that. But for this first one, we were kind of easing back in. For those of you who did join us, thank you so much. We had such a fun time. Oh my gosh, it was a blast. I can't wait to do it again. I'm hooked. Sweet. So so I have a little fun story for this week. First of all, I got a job. I'm very excited. I'm working for a company that seems really well suited to my interest and my level and my interest in being better at what I do. So always a good day. Don't have to work at that place in the mall. Woo! But also, this week I got to go see Johannes Moser, who is a really, really incredible cellist. I got to see him do Dvorak. And first of all, my boyfriend works for the symphony, and he wanted to get a copy of Dvorak signed by Moser. And not only did this man sign it, he drew these pictures on it and wrote like a little message and drew a picture of himself. It's so cute. I'm going to post it in the Discord. But I was like, what an incredible guy to go the extra mile. Oh, I love that. In signing this. Yeah, it's gorgeous, actually. It's very, very cool. However, I consider myself a person who is pretty loosey-goosey when it comes to concert etiquette. I'm very open to people not understanding that you don't clap between movements or like whispering or even like light chatter because sometimes you just want to talk about what's happening on stage don't be loud during concerts but i i don't personally talk i'm open to other people you know Mm -hmm. being comfortable sure if if you pull out your phone and look at it during a concert for more than 10 seconds to check the time So help me, I they were they were teenagers and they were clearly there on some kind of school trip and I wasn't gonna ruin their time at the symphony by calling them the things that I thought about them because I did several times think about it and I did run into them after the concert but I was like I don't want somebody to have a bad memory of the symphony because of me and they're mm-hmm. also young mm-hmm. like high school is young and this might have been their first time in a hall but I was like boy <laughs> I was like <laughs> the. The the iPad generation of it all. Stop. <laughs> they are. They're iPad kids. No I offense. Know. If you can't sit through a concert without being on your phone on your phone, I, just get up and go to the restroom and don't come back. <laughs> it's true, Because, though. well, here's the other problem. They We have a, a, there's a chorus box that sits behind the symphony, and that's where they were seated, so we could all see them. Oh, bad. 
<laughs> not visibly to everyone in the audience. Ooh. I do think I do think that high school groups that are coming in should have those. I, I see them at comedy clubs a lot now because comedians don't want you recording their sets. It's these little lockable pouches. So you, you still have your phone on you. It's just locked in a bag. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're super handy. They're really good for events like that where they want you to be present and not recording. I was like, yeah, that everyone else can do, keep their phone. But if you're in part of a school group, maybe we institute those. Sure. It was also Dvorak and Brahms. I was like, it doesn't get... Like, this is exciting and fun music. Yeah. So I was losing, <laughs> losing my mind a little bit. Like I said, they're kids. You know, who knows? Yeah. And they're they're probably there because someone has told them to be there. They're, you know. But, but please don't get on your phone in a concert. Please lock your phone away. And even if you don't want to be immensely tuned in, learn to sit with your thoughts. That's my, my get off my lawn speech for the day. I realize I'm getting older. <laughs> I don't. It's... I mean, you're totally like All valid. These kids with their FaceTime and their TikToks. I, know. Well, I get it. I love yeah. it. My phone usage. If you look at my phone usage, it's excessive and depressing to look at how often I'm on my phone. So I, if anybody gets it, it's me. But please put them away every once in a while and just live inside your head. Well, so I feel like this has been a wild time in the concert venues because I also went and saw the LA Phil over the weekend. And we were super excited, first of all. I was bamboozled, tricked, bewildered <laughs> because part of the reason that we went was because Nadine Sierra was supposed to be singing. And we were like, oh, my God, what a treat. Let's go. It was a symphony fantastique. And then she was going to be singing this <gasps> piece by Crumb called Ancient Voices of Children. And I didn't know anything about the piece, but I was like, it doesn't even matter because Nadine is singing. So obviously we're going to go and see her. And so we go. And we're handed our programs, and of course, there's like that little insert of death, which you always know is going to tell you that something oh. exciting is now changed. And so, of course, Nadine Sierra was ill, and so she had to to cancel. And so we were like already kind of pissed, <laughs> hurt, <laughs> betrayed. We, I know we like spent the extra money to get good seats, and so we were like, well. <laughs> but she was filled in by Sofia Burgos, who I was not familiar with. She did a fantastic job, so amazing sub. It was a great concert. The crumb piece was super interesting. It had a lot of um, kind of extended vocal and kind of instrumental techniques. So it starts off with the soprano singing into an amplified open piano to kind of bring out that echo that happens when you sing into the piano strings Ooh. yeah and it was really funny though because you could tell that a lot of the audience i wouldn't say like even half but like a good amount of the audience obviously came for symphony fantastique and so it was kind of funny when the soprano turned around and started leaning over into the piano and started it kind of starts as like nonsensical babble and then turns into words so it's like a lot of like kind of crazy vocal inflections and you could feel this like palpable energy in the audience of all the people who are not used to new music and came for Berlioz and were like what is happening <laughs> and then you can feel love that equal force of people who like new music or, or at least are open to stuff like that and new experiences who are like hell yeah and so <laughs> It was a it was a really interesting thing because you could really just feel those two energies in the room, which was really funny. But that wasn't even the craziest part of the night, Jesse. Zubin Mehta was conducting the LA Phil. They sound absolutely freaking fantastic in Symphonie Fantastique. And somewhere in the third or fourth movement 
all of a sudden this guy in orchestra not in the orchestra but like in the orchestra section who has to be okay. like three rows from you know first row turns around and like says something kind of audible but could not be made up and just like starts yelling at the lady sitting directly behind him and we were like oh oh my god and he like turns around he's like in a total huff and it's like this older couple and then he turns around again and starts like pointing his finger like directly in her face and we were like oh my god like what's happening and so the couple like stands up and switches spots so that the husband was directly in f- behind him and it was like crazy and there was like such a weird energy and then he started like making like this big fuss like towards the people around him and the orchestra sounds amazing and we're like please don't ruin the concert like it- it's so good like I don't want to be distracted but the whole time I'm like keeping an eye because I'm like see there's a fight that's about to break out right now <laughs> This is how I it felt internally about those teens talking. I was like, please stop being a distraction. But that's also why I would rarely ever actually chastise somebody, especially actively during a concert, because it is distracting. I do, however, carry note cards. I carry business cards in my purse that say stop talking. I love that. That's not a joke. <laughs> I actually, I've had them since high school. I rarely, rarely, if ever, use them. Most of the time, I'll use them as a joke on friends. But, <laughs> uh, well, but they're handy. Because it's a really good way to be like, I can hear you and so can everyone else. But who knows what that guy was going off about? Well, that was the thing. It like continued to get worse because I didn't really catch it. But when we went out for intermission, there was this guy like screaming at the bar who was like mad about waiting. But I was and there was like kind of a commotion. And I was kind of like, don't feel like engaging with that. So I went a little outside garden and didn't catch anything. But Connor was like, oh, my God, that dude's like losing his mind. And so it was the same guy. And this guy had to be like in his 60s, maybe 70s. This is just people. This is how I think everyone in the service industry feels about people, you know, not post-COVID. We're still in it. But post things reopening. It's like like, everyone has lost all sense of decorum or manners when they deal with other people. Well, it was just funny because like he's throwing a fit and I'm like trying to go to the bathroom during intermission and this like security guard starts running up the escalator and just full on trips (laughs) on the escalator. And so it was just like the hottest mess. I was like, what the heck is going on? So fast forward back to the to the Symphony Fantastique. It ends. You know, everybody's thrilled. Nothing too crazy has happened. But then the, the guy starts arguing with the couple that he was like totally harassing and the the person next to the couple that he was harassing like started butting in and this guy was like ready to throw hands and the older man had a cane that he was like like pretending to hit him with like as a threat and I was like what is happening so meanwhile like the the orchestra's like doing all of their bows and stuff and like just more and more security are filing into the orchestra section like waiting because he's sitting like directly in the middle so there's like at least 10 to 15 people on either side so they can't really get to him you know this man is banned this man is banned from the symphony center for sure oh so the worst part is he gets up like everybody's left and there's this younger couple in like the first or second row and I don't know what he must have said to them because they were probably like around our age like in their 20s or 30s and this the other couple this guy is obviously like holding on to his girlfriend for dear life and is like in full defense mode so I don't know what the hell this older man said to them but he like 
the younger guy started yelling back at him and was like, stay away. And of course, like in the Walt Disney Hall, it like echoes throughout the entire space. Yeah. And then the older man just starts like cussing him out and then security takes him out. And so for sure he was banned. But I, I've never experienced anything like it. Like you would have thought that this like this performance was the right of spring like premiere like people were just losing their minds left and right it was wild <laughs> so that's my story of symphony fantastique and how there was almost Woo. a like five fights breaking out in the orchestra section so, you know what you make me super happy that i kept my cool with the kids who were on their phones because the last thing i ever want to do be is an old man shaking his cane at people who are just trying to watch a symphony yeah, I mean, obviously the man was very unwell because he was just like, oh yeah, throwing I mean, it, a tantrum left and right. It's probably beyond the scope of just angry. There's yeah. probably some very unfunny actual health issue there. Yeah, it was crazy. However, the situation itself is incredibly funny and awkward. It was so yeah. Connor and I literally stayed till the end to I watch love, you get carried off. I know you did, because your story, you're like, everyone's gone except us because we're incredibly nosy. Oh, yeah. No, we, we stayed <laughs> to watch the whole thing. You know, I was like, I leaned over to Connor as like more and more security start filing in and people start to exit. Oh, for sure. And I was I like, yeah, I was like, looked at him and I was like, I'm kind of invested in this. Can we stay? <laughs> he was like, yeah. I want to see if I can find like a TikTok of it later. Well, I was really disappointed at the power, the supposed power of Twitter, because obviously right out the concert, I tweeted and was like, did anybody know what the heck was this guy's problem? And nothing. So if anybody knows something, if you were there in the audience. Yeah. If anybody has further information about that, please tell us. I'm very nosy and wow. I want to know. What a, what a trip to the symphony we've had. Still go to your symphonies. They're fun, either for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Well, we were laughing because we were like, that was like really messed up. But honestly, it added to the drama of it all. So. And nobody yeah. nobody was hurt. Yeah. So there was no like actual physical fight. So, you know, everybody Just left a, lot a little of drama. shaken. But yeah, exactly. In the true spirit of <laughs> classical music, we're, we're all talk. There's that's, no real fighting. That's what I'm saying. It literally felt like the Rite of Spring premiere where people just start brawling. Like, that's what I was envisioning. <laughs> Listen, once once you start singing into open pianos, what can you expect other than a riot? Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, let's get to just a singular <laughs> quick announcement, which is that we are still doing our giveaway. We are ironing out some details. So stay tuned in to our Instagram for the next week. We will be putting out more information on there. Heck yeah. Uh, but we're very, very excited about our upcoming 100th episode. And I would like to ask a favor of our audience members, whether you are new or have been listening for a long time. If you have any favorite moments from the podcast, I would love if you would send us a little DM, a little message, and we'll be requesting on Instagram too. But I, I would love to know what your favorite moments for the podcast are, because obviously we have our own. But I'm curious as to what people have picked up on over 100 episodes and three years of podcasting. <laughs> I honestly can't believe it. It's really, really trippy. It's absolutely nuts. And also, thank you to everybody. We had such a lovely reaction to our news update episodes, and we're going to be working those more into a regularly scheduled thing. Not every single month, but with with a decent amount of frequency so we can get and cover more things that are happening in the moment. But we got lots of... Mm -hmm. So now let's talk a little bit about artistry. I think that we talk a lot about the business side of art, the self-care side of art, the educational side of art and the practical parts of being a musician, but I don't think we speak to the realities of developing and maintaining artistry in what we do. And I think it's because 
it's a difficult conversation. Artistry is a very ambiguous idea, and it means something different to everyone, and therefore it's not something you can actually put in a curriculum or teach necessarily. There's not really a right or wrong way to be an artist, and therefore there's no real way to show how to do it necessarily. But I think that classical music especially suffers in the modern world because of our ignorance towards ideas of artistry. And I think the particular challenges of artistry within modern classical music, first and foremost, the push of art into the academic sphere. I'm really glad we have music schools. I'm glad I went to through a music program. However, the necessity of academia is that there is a right and a wrong. Right. And that <laughs> that's a really absolute idea on something that isn't. Because, for example, if you pushed us backwards in time and you do something like Rite of Spring and you showed that to music schools, they would have said, you're wrong. This is bad. This is very bad and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. they would, and they would have ultimately been wrong. Art is inevitably always pushing at its own boundaries. And it's far more subjective than schools can necessarily handle because schools have to be accredited. And accrediting bodies for universities don't have room for the way the arts operate. If you've ever wondered why you do so much writing in a music degree, it's because you are required (laughs) in order for your music school to be able to give you a degree that is accepted across the United States. Mm -hmm. I think it's good that people do writing. But, I don't know, I mean, when you were going through school, don't you think it's kind of funny looking back how much of what you learn... I, I took composition lessons for a short time in my undergrad just to keep my theory skills up to date. And the first thing they told me was, you have to forget everything you know about music theory. Great. <laughs> and I was like, what was the point of learning all this music theory then if if most of it was meant to be, you know, a shoot when I was actually writing, you know? And I think the other major complication that we deal with is the internet. We are, more than any previous generation, subject to the opinions and thoughts of others. The absolute ideas of taste that the internet can decide. And now, you know, we have vast collections of books, and we have teachers, and so we are constantly bombarded with, these are the best things, and these are the bad things, and you should know that. And if you disagree, then you're wrong. Yeah. And that's a terrible way to live artistically, especially if you do not actually enjoy something. Well, it's funny because, you know, if you have a different opinion on some classic works or or you're working with a teacher or coach who has very, who's always taught this one thing, this one way. Yeah, you're right. You're either, you can be perceived as wrong for having a different or like even opposite opinion, or you kind of have to be ready to defend your thoughts to the nth degree which is which can be very exhausting and now you know there are times when you might have an idea about something but it just completely goes against the style of of something and then you kind of have to work backwards to kind of figure out how do my ideas fit within the style but there's a lot of room for interpretation in a lot of music I'll never forget I coached this one piece in Spanish there's no tempo marking it's literally a folk song. There's like it's one of those songs where you can really kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> and I wanted to take it at a really brisk tempo because I thought that that made it exciting. And I remember working with a coach who was like, that's way too fast. And I was like, I can sing it. I can sing the melismas well and they're clean. So I don't think that it's too fast. Plus, this is like Spanish music. So it's meant to be freaking bomb. So <laughs> why don't we try it? We tried it and he liked it. 
I was like, let me have my ideas. Don't shut me down before I even try, you know? Exactly. And what that leads to is people approaching things from the tell me how to do this right, not approaching with their own ideas and concepts of what they're singing. You know, when you ask why so many students listen and are, you know, parroting records and recordings that they've heard, it's because they're so afraid to be wrong. Yeah. And I I do, to some degree, blame both the Internet and academia for that. You know, and there's these ideas of like, oh, this is the definitive recording of this piece. Says who? Why? Yeah. It it definitely cuts out a lot of, you know, unique thoughts. And it definitely limits us to push the boundaries of what we would like to do. And I think, yeah, sometimes you're going to have an opinion about something and you'll try it and you're like, actually, that didn't work. <laughs> I guess there is a reason that everybody does it this way. But a lot of the times there is wiggle room and you can adapt or fully embrace your own interpretations. And I think that the idea of there being one way to do anything within music is very limiting and close-minded exactly and i think also to some degree both because of academia and because people are trying to make a living it can be really hard to find an actual mentor you know if you're in a studio of 10 to 20 students that's a lot of people to be teaching all at once and the reality is is that you're not going to get a lot of individual time with all of those people which means that you're not going to have the time to invest in things beyond the absolutely necessary Right. You're going to be focused on getting them into their pieces and performing as quickly as possible, not necessarily developing a better sense of how do you make decisions? How do you develop an interpretation? Right. Because we don't know how to tell people how to develop interpretations or how to view art or how to self-introspect and meditate on these ideas. And we also don't have time for it within, you know, the frames given to us by schools. Yeah, and a huge part of schooling, obviously, especially, you know, for all instrumentalists, but also as singers is, you know, when it comes down to it, you're really workshopping your technique. As much as we would like to pretend that technique and performance skills are on equal playing fields in terms of the time dedicated to them in academia, it's just wrong. Technique is definitely incredibly important. You will not have a long lasting career with poor technique. You won't be able to get your ideas across with poor technique, but the focus almost the sole focus of technique often overshadows kind of the equally important skills of acting, of learning to convey emotion, of personal interpretation, and especially of vulnerability. I find for myself, whenever I find artists that I really like, if you watch their interviews, it's because they have spent so much time, you know, thinking about the pieces that they're singing, thinking about the emotions behind the pieces they're singing, really putting them in that vulnerable space space to explore those emotions and tap into something deeper and those are always the artists that I think you know end up being those definitive recordings so to speak but that's something that needs to be taught at you know the undergraduate level because you really won't have a career without being able to tap into that and be a performer music and being a singer isn't just about singing it's about conveying emotion it's about bringing the audience into whatever world it is that you're creating with any given piece. Exactly. And that's that's what I ended up asking myself, because we actually haven't still answered our question, what does it mean to be an artist? And when <laughs> I started to ask myself how, how I defined artist, I started looking at performers, visual artists, any kind of, of art-related career. I started looking at the people who I most admired. And what I found there 
was an overlap of three things. So I built a Venn diagram. <laughs> three circles. <laughs> Amazing. All right? And there are three spheres of artistry to me, and that is technical skill. Because as much as we just talked about that it shouldn't be the center of the universe, I do think you need a certain amount of technical skill in order to achieve artistry. Absolutely. Second of all was entertainment. Now, I'm still looking for a better word for this one, to be honest. But entertainment, to me, is either for like the pure amusement, but it's capturing attention. It's making people think. Yes. Right? It's maintaining that focus. It's drawing people in. It is, it's enticement in that sense. But I use entertainment because I think it's, a, it's an easier word to explain it. Because if people aren't interested in seeing what you're doing, I don't necessarily think you can call it artistry because there's nothing drawing people to actually want to look at it. It's kind of like how I feel about <laughs> landscape painting. They're beautiful. They're technically very skilled, but it's pretty rare that a landscape painting necessarily draws me in. Yeah, well, you're getting at the difference between being engaging in whatever form or emotion that it is that the piece calls for versus just a plant and sing. It's definitely an opening up of oneself, even if you're not trying to be entertaining for the sake of being entertaining. But it's that engagement that allows the audience to more freely receive what it is that you're giving them versus thinking about your technique versus am I going to yeah. hit this high note, you know, being stuck yeah. inside your own head. Lots of things. I, I, I'll change that actually to engagement, something mm -hmm. that engages your audience because you can engage people in ways that shock them, that repulse them, that there's lots of art that causes different reactions. But the point is people are thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, creativity. And this is the one that I think is most lacking for classical musicians. I have met many entertaining or engaging, technically skillful musicians, but I meet less who are creative, who push the boundary of the obvious in our art form into something great, something previously unknown. And that's because it's hard and it's risky and it's vulnerable. And creativity is a personal expression and therefore, it is immensely vulnerable. It is very scary to be openly creative in front of people and know that they may reject whatever you have to offer. But I think all real artists do push the boundary of what is acceptable within their art form. And I think that kind of creativity and risk-taking makes a huge difference. And I think, actually, you could pretty much pair off most of the performers you know, whether they be in classical music or popular or they're visual artists or sculptors, you know, I think most of people, you could fit into this wheelhouse. You could put them in different sections of this Venn diagram and figure out what you think they're great at or not so great at. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good, helpful way to, to think about the different elements. You know, we might not ever be able to answer what exactly is an artist, but we can definitely grasp at the different things and elements and skills that add to being an artist. Exactly. I think early on when I was just starting out before I started learning rules, I had a lot of creativity because I hadn't learned. I, I didn't have the self-knowledge to be sh shameful. And then I got older and I got better at technical skills, but I lost some creativity and entertaining, you know, engagement along the way because I was so focused on retraining myself that inwardly I was on this right and wrong path and I wasn't really focused on my audience. Yeah, I think another interesting thing that makes up or a skill that artists have is... You know, you have to be a sponge 
in many ways. You have to absorb source material, inspiration from everything, from the world, from life experiences, from things that are not music. And then at the same time, it has to be balanced by an equally active skill of unlearning, working through things that maybe you've picked up along the way that no longer serve you. Like your example of, you know, becoming more self-aware and and maybe more privy to some of the feedback that you get when you make a choice and someone's like, no, that's not it. Unlearning that that shame that comes with exploring your own ideas and interpretations. Exactly. I think the worst thing that classical music does to people is it removes people from their autonomy and their own self-trust of interpretation. There's so much history and stuff that we carry with us some days. There's so much previous interpretation and all of that that sometimes we forget to be just a little bit irreverent. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of really good art is a little bit irreverent. Definitely. I think that the shameful, shameful thing about classical music is very, very often we steal from people the thing that would make them special which is their own unique viewpoint, regardless of whether or not we agree. Yeah. Which brings me to my next point, which is if you are like me and you find yourself in this place where you don't feel like an artist, you don't feel like you have been making your own decisions, how do you regain your own sense of artistry and taste? How do you regain those parts of it yourself? How do you build that muscle again? And the first thing I started doing was I would keep lists of favorite performances and pieces and I would find the through line on what made me love those things. So for example, one of the things I really like, I really like Bo Burnham. And the reason I really (laughs) like Bo Burnham is because I thought that the self-effacing nature of the art, the deeper meaning and the addressing of these weird little obvious patterns that we never talk about in comedy or art or performance and the grasping of those things within a performance a performance within a performance a comedy show and an intense sense of commentary I really love that I love when people open up little pockets of the obvious to talk about right yeah it's things like that it's You know, or why do I really love watching Natalie DeSay sing? And it's because she breaks the rules of beautiful singing in order to perform. Oh, Natalie DeSay is literally just the pinnacle of this, of artistry. Exactly. But I love that because I think I never know what's going to happen when she steps on a stage. I never know what direction she's going to take it in. And therefore, it will never be boring to me. Right? So that's it. It's, It's writing down your favorite things, your favorite performances, and figuring out Why does this draw me in? And then invest in those things in yourself. Invest in breaking those boundaries or finding that line in your own work. Number two is trust your gut. You don't have to learn to like things. (laughs) I wish somebody had told me a long time ago because there were so many things that I felt like I had to like because I was in, you know, I would have all this education and stuff like surely you have to like this thing because everyone agrees this thing is good Mm -hmm. do not pretend to like things that are fashionable or considered intellectual if they do not touch you and they do not make you feel excited so here's my dirty little secret of things that i don't like 
<laughs> I have never really enjoyed. There's maybe one or two songs. I don't listen to Jacob Collier. I have so many musicians <laughs> who bring him up to me and they're like, he does so much with microtonal work. And I get it. And on an educational level and like on a, you know, musicology level, I listened to it. and I was like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. But it doesn't make me feel a single thing. And that's personal. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm saying this isn't for me. And those are two different things. I can appreciate what Jacob Collier does without saying, I like this. Mm-hmm. I'm not eschewing him for all of time and space, okay? <laughs> I don't want to hear a bunch of reasoning in my, my DMs about why he's great. I get it. I'm saying it doesn't personally make me feel much. And, it, you know, there's an old quote. It gets said all the time. Uh, it's an Aristotle quote. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. There are many, many musicians. I use Jacob Collier as a joke because I've had so many people have this conversation with me. But there are lots of musicians who are very famous and popular whose music I don't really care for and I'm not really interested in performing. And that's okay. I can understand the critical value of them to the story of music history without trying to force myself to like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally fair. For another example, you're not the biggest fan of Pavarotti either. No, I'm not. I think Pavarotti <laughs> is great, and I do think he is the definitive recording of some pieces. I think he's very fun, but I get annoyed when people tell me that he's, like, the greatest tenor who will ever have lived or has lived. There are better tenors now, alive, this second, performing. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I feel like this also especially applies to some of these, like, you know, golden era singers. I might be outing myself beyond the point of return, but I, I have, in my... <laughs> personal experience do it do it do it i've already put myself up twice now with Pavarotti and jacob collier i my neck is on the chopping block well i think i might take it a step further and say that i've never been like so so incredibly smitten with maria Callas. i feel like there are equal recordings of her that i'm like oh and equal recordings of her i'm like wow that was really beautiful and so she's just like Honestly, though, I feel like sometimes that's the the hallmark of some of those older age singers because they didn't follow Fox and this BS that we have that we follow to the T. Like there was lots of roles that she sang that probably weren't her wheelhouse, but she did it anyways. And like amazing. But <laughs> she's always one of those people where I feel like she is like the definitive singer of like all time. And I'm kind of like, I don't know about that. Like you said, I think that there are are singers before and after her that have come and gone that are just equally as amazing so it's interesting i think the funny thing too is that when taste changes when the tide turns and everyone's like oh actually nobody liked this mm -hmm. and you're like are you kidding me yeah. I, I kept up this facade <laughs> for years and, and that happens in popular culture too when people turn their backs on an artist or i've seen taylor swift fall in and out of fashion like six times you know, where everyone's like, oh, she's just this. And then everyone's like, she's the best. And then it's like, no, she's... And it, it, it's the nature of the internet on that one. But when it comes to classical music, I feel like there's so much pressure to agree. Yeah. The best thing you can do is be willing to say, I understand. However, it doesn't really... It doesn't make me feel that way. Because music mm -hmm. is a visceral art form. And the best thing I ever did for myself was reconnect to the fact that there are things that I viscerally love. And there are things that I intellectually like. And those yeah. are two separate values. Trust yourself. Allow yourself to agree, disagree, 
and know that you're not a worst artist because nothing's worse. And I've done this to people is the, you just don't get it. Maybe I don't. <laughs> Whatever has built me to the person I am today doesn't get certain things. So be yeah. it. And that's okay. The world I grew up in, the music I grew up with means that I will always lean towards certain ideas. I love anything infused with folk music. Why? Because I grew up with a lot of folk music. <laughs> yeah. Unsurprising. Simple as that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Another great thing is consider innovations in other fields. That's one of the best ways to innovate in your own field is to look at what everyone else is doing, you know? And that could be theater, that could be visual arts, you know, we could be talking about infusing performances with visual occasions. I think one of the things I would love most to see is much in the way that I've seen musicals that take place within a space. So you move from room to room with people. Mm -hmm. I would love to see that with classical music. I would love to see story and music unfold in different acoustic spaces. No, absolutely. I, it's, it's funny because a lot of this stuff actually happens in classical music on a smaller scale. And then it's kind of brushed off as like, oh, they're one of those those companies, you know, and you're like, yeah, but they're doing cool stuff and not performing freaking La Boheme the same way it's been performed forever and ever. You know, <laughs> like I can't wait for the arrival of one of the I'll, I'll go ahead and spill the beans on something that I've wanted to work on a long time, but I don't have the wherewithal to focus on right now i've always wanted to do a vr classical concert which would involve an unbelievable amount of cameras and microphones but i would love to create a vr concert where you can move throughout the space and see how sound and visual changes if you were say standing in the middle of a string quartet versus standing across the room versus standing behind them oh that's cool to talk about how sound and all of that moves is to get up close with the violins and the cellos and the singer and see it. Mm -hmm. And yes, that's an immensely vulnerable thing to ask the people you're recording of. But what an exciting thing that we might one day be able to do, which is to invite people into real concert spaces without them being physically there and to allow them to experience music in a way that we haven't been able to, to make them present in the room. Wherever they want to sit, there will be no you know, evaluation of only one person can sit in this row in this good seat. There's going to be so much cool stuff happening and we should keep our eyes and our ears open to the many ways in which other fields continue to innovate and the ways we can join them. Yeah, I love that. I think that also kind of adds to this general idea that, you know, the biggest consumer of music is often, and especially in classical music, is fellow musicians. We are a huge part of the general patronage of the arts and while there are inherent issues with that in the future of classical music I feel like some of that is because you know we have been able to you know see behind the curtain so to speak and experience the thrill of being on stage of moving around an orchestra moving around a choir being a soloist and I think that there are sometimes ways in which you know fellow musicians really viscerally appreciate the arts in a way that you know maybe not all audience members are able to but maybe through something like that they would be able to understand the excitement that comes of being on stage oh yeah but even then in a concert where you can move around you can talk you can pause like mm -hmm. you can take a chance to do the very human things that are you know you can check your phone <laughs> <Anger>. <laughs> and you shouldn't always play by the rules i mean that's the biggest lesson I learned when I was, you know, taking those composition lessons. Nobody asked to see my compositions, all right? It it was fine. They were fine. But 
all rules are meant to be broken. And I, I think that's very true. And I think the best rules to break if you are if you're a singer and you're wondering like, okay, well, what rules do I break? I can't exactly rewrite the music. Don't rewrite your music, okay? <laughs> Sing what's on the page. But you don't have to follow the rules of interpretation. You can develop whatever relationship between your characters that you want. And in fact, pushing those boundaries is going to help you and the other person better define the specific relationship you're going to create on stage. And if it, one of the funniest things that I ever saw a very dear friend of mine saying, weep, you no more sad fountains and smiled <laughs> the entire time. And I completely and utterly disagree with that interpretation personally, <laughs> but I'm glad they did it because it was interesting to see play, <laughs> play and have fun and push the boundary of what your piece is about. Sing Aki Fuse as if it's a happy song. You may not use it, but you'll learn something. Crumple, Crumple to the ground on performance. You can't sing well from the ground. Yeah, it's going to probably get... They're probably going to tell you not to do it again. But they'll remember it. Have fun. Because the worst thing in the world that happens is they tell you they don't like it. And that's not going to kill you. Well, it was interesting because I was... I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but we listened to the episode with Gustavo Dudamel on the Smartless podcast. And I could just listen to that man speak about literally anything. I could listen to him read the telephone like yellow pages and I would be mesmerized but he did offer this interesting thing where Jason Bateman asks he's like you know you have the music and everything like how much can you bend the rules how much is open to interpretation and how much is like can't touch it and I'm paraphrasing but Gustavo Dudamel basically says you know there are certain things that you can't touch like you cannot change the notes that's absolutely off the table there's nothing that you can do about that nor would you want to but everything else has varying degrees of varying degrees of being malleable um, and varying degrees of which you can infuse interpretation of which you can change of which you can, you know, confidently say this is the way that, that it could be. And I just thought that that was so interesting. And I think that, you know, you have to learn to trust and value your own decisions and thoughts. And I go back to my example earlier of not being able to being shot down before I even got a chance to try what I wanted to do with a song. You know, being an artist is also, you know, giving kind <laughs> pushback to those who tell you that you can't do something. And like I said earlier, your decision or your thought may not work out in your favor. Like Jesse said, it may be something that gave you some insight, but you're not going to use it. But you really do have to kind of take your ideas to heart and, you know, exercise them. Because at the end of the day, not everybody is going to like your style. And that's good. That's totally fine. And honestly, that's like a really solid thing to aspire to because for me, when I think of an artist, a great example of this is Cecilia Bartoli. Some people cannot stand the way that she performs. Lots of people think she's way too over the top, like she's moving too much, it's distracting, yada, yada. And that's fine if you feel that way. I personally think that she is exceptional. And I would way rather watch Cecilia Bartoli do her little dances and, and nods and whatever little movements than I would a plant and sing artist or an artist who maybe sang something definitively correctly in terms of technique and is just not having that engaging creativity elements that you kind of discussed in your Venn diagram. But you don't have to be palatable and loved by everybody. And honestly, to me, that is a sign of a good artist oh, because that means that I you bring love. something 
to the table that not everybody is going to enjoy, and that's good. In 2022, one of the things I wrote in my journal, like towards the beginning of the year, was like, <laughs> I am not, in fact, rated E for everyone. And I don't have to be. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a product for sale that has to be marketable. I'm a person. I'm, I'm a human being with my own thoughts and feelings, and not everyone is going to like the things that I am, and that's okay. And it was a big step towards this whole thing. But you're right. You shouldn't be palatable. The things that are marketed to everyone are very purposely, intentionally, a little bit bland. I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking about a big country artist who just did a performance in Nashville. And I won't name drop them because I've said enough <laughs> in this podcast. But I told my boyfriend that I had tuned into his open concert thing and I was like, this? This is what everyone's talking about? Mm-hmm. And it's very cliche country music. You know, how dirt road, blue jeans, good girl. <laughs> big truck and go go listen to Bo Burnham's country song and you got about the gist of it but and I was telling you I was like every time I talk about something like this with people is like well so many people love him you know it has to be good and I was like it can be okay I was like I don't think McDonald's despite the fact that it's probably one of the highest revenue earners in the country is good food <laughs> it's palatable and I'll eat it every once in a while and it's definitely nostalgic but I would never I would never bring someone into America and be like, this is the peak of cuisine. <laughs> I don't know. But I have McDonald's to fries offer. though. The the fries though? Man. <laughs> that that's, that's some cuisine. But yes. <laughs> peak cuisine. But that's my point is just because something has mass appeal doesn't mean that it's good. And it McDonald's will never live in that sphere. McDonald's will never live in the sphere of really good food because it's not meant to be. It's meant to yeah. be mass, mass accessible and palatable. And don't don't be McDonald's. It's like, a right? what is that pizza place that's, is it Little 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 Caesars? <laughs> is it Little Caesars? Or it's yes. just like hot, hot and ready? And it's like, yeah. Hot and ready. Is it good? Is it edible? It's, it's, I don't know, it's hot it's and hot ready to go. Ready. You can come and grab it. But that's exactly it. And the, the, I'm glad those things exist. I'm glad mass appeal, palatable things exist. You know, they they fill our guilty pleasure playlists. Yeah. But don't don't aspire to that. Aspire to yourself. To the utmost of what you love about art. And that doesn't mean if you gain mass appeal, you're a terrible, unartistic person. But get there by being true to your own artistic ideas and forms, whatever they be. Learn learn to believe in your own decision-making, even when people disagree with you. I'm not saying, you know, don't be like the guy at LA, LA Phil and, like, fist fight about it. But- oh, my God. <laughs> but when your teacher says, I think this is, you know, I don't agree with your interpretation. Instead of shutting down or immediately agreeing, which was definitely my my way of operating for a long time, turn it into a discussion. Talk about why you made the decisions you did. Talk about, you know, how you can better communicate your ideas as opposed to just shifting gears entirely to something more acceptable. And that, you know, that's the thing. That's the first step. I there was a pianist that Michelle and I went to school with uh, who I saw in a master class where somebody talked to him about his, their, his interpretation and he disagreed with them in the master class, which is generally speaking not a good idea. 
Master classes are very just go with the flow, but I remember realizing that that's what set this person apart as a musician from a lot of the people in our class, including myself, was like, oh, he's coming in with his own firm ideas of this art, and he believes in them. Yeah. And that's the first step, is finding your own decisions and believing in them entirely. Take it one day at a time, but do rebuild your artistry. Don't let this industry steal that from you for the sake of creating a career that you may not end up liking if you do. So that's my challenge for everybody, especially, you know, we're still, I know the months are (laughs) whipping past us at this point, but there's so much time. So a little bit every day, find a performance that you love, find a writer that you love to read, find a movie that you love to watch and invest yourself in the art that makes you happy to be alive and turn that into your own art that makes you happy to be alive because someone out there is waiting for your art someone out there is waiting to see what you're going to do and you have to stop denying the world you because you are the greatest piece of art that you have to offer you are not a mere interpreter of other people's art other people's decisions other people's writing You are the encapsulation of it as a performer. Embrace that. Next week is our 100th episode. And I'm super excited to share that with you guys. I'm super excited to celebrate three whole years of opera offstage. And we're going to talk about some behind-the-scenes stuff. We're going to talk about favorite episodes. We're going to talk about some kooky stuff that happened along the way. We're going to talk about the great hiatus of 2022. Um... (laughs) We're going to get into all of that and we're going to have an open and fun discussion about it. So we will see you guys then. Until that, come join us on Instagram, Discord, at Opera Offstage. The link for the Discord is in the bio and in the description for the episode. We'll see you there. Bye. Bye.